0: This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank and their Smart Start Bank account for 11 to 15-year-olds. When I was growing up, my parents would always tell us that money didn't grow on trees and if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. But to be honest, I never really understood what these old sayings meant or what they were trying to teach me. And I think like with lots of life skills, these things are just so much easier to learn from a young age. And this is definitely something I think about now with my own children. And I can see it in my niece because since she got her Lloyds Bank smart start account, she has become somewhat of a saving superstar. She's already learning how to manage her money and learning these habits, which are going to make her adult life so much easier. She's also so excited about using it too, which is brilliant. They get their own card. they get a savings account and a spending account. It's just such a good idea and something that you can do as a parent that's going to help them flourish in the future. It's so clever. It's so good for their confidence. And it's just something that I wish genuinely had been around when I was that age. I think as parents, we all know we have a lot of plates in the air. (laughs) And even with the best intentions, we just don't have the time to teach our children everything that we'd like to. And sometimes that means important conversations get rushed or brushed over. So I really am excited to be working with Lloyds on this campaign because it's all focused on building financial confidence in children. To be eligible, parents and guardians need to have an existing Club Lloyd's current account and be registered for internet banking. To find out more, head to lloydsbank.com forward slash smart start. Thank you very much to Lloyd's Bank. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Desert Island Dishes we have a very special episode for you today which i was so excited to record we went over to sophie's house one monday morning a house which felt very familiar because of its starring role in sophie's videos and famous kitchen discos but i have to say i was more than a little flustered as i had a major childcare emergency that morning which was very stressful and i cried for most of the morning and all the way to the interview I feel like I wasn't on top of my game for this interview, despite weeks of prep, but that felt very appropriate given Sophie is the mother of five boys and she also has her own brilliant podcast called Spinning Plates. And I definitely felt like that was a major Spinning Plates moment for me. And talking of podcasts, I love listening to podcasts and I'm always on the lookout for podcast recommendations. So I wanted to tell you about the Liz Earl Wellbeing Show. Liz is a friend of the show, as she's been a guest on Desert Island Dishes, as some of you might remember. She's an author, entrepreneur, and just general well-being guru. Her podcast is all about health and well-being, and helping us to have a better second half. Liz's mission is to find ways for us all to thrive later in life and to do that by investing in our health and well-being today. I particularly enjoyed the Mo Gowda episode. He's amazing in general and he talks to Liz about how to be happy and his experience of actually finding out that the more he had, the worse he felt. It's a really good listen and it will really make you think so do check that out if you're on the lookout for something to listen to and let me know what you think you can find the liz earl well-being show wherever you listen to your podcast and also do stick around at the end of this episode because we're running a competition with the garden trading company where you've got a chance to win 250 pounds to spend on their site i'm going to give you all the details at the end and i'll also pop the details in the show notes too Now all that's left for me to say is thank you again to our sponsor Lloyds Bank. They help us to bring the show to you each week, for which we are very grateful. And now that is more than enough of me waffling, here is today's episode. I do hope you enjoy. My guest today is Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Sophie is a double platinum selling artist. She started out as the lead singer of indie band The Audience at the age of just 17 and shot to fame with her single with Groove Jet, which earned her her first number one. Since then, she's gone on to release six studio and two compilation albums, written a memoir, went on Strictly Come Dancing, appeared in Game of Thrones, launched her own podcast, wrote a cookbook with her husband, and kept everyone dancing during lockdown with weekly discos streamed live from her kitchen. She's achieved all this and much more whilst also being the mother of five boys. In 2021, she did a 24-hour kitchen disco dance-a-thon which raised over a million pounds for children in need. I am thrilled to have the undisputed queen of lockdown with us today. Welcome, Sophie.
1: (laughs) Hello. I I kept really quiet during that. I didn't even like, it was like no eye contact. I felt like (laughs) I I had to pretend (laughs) I'm invisible
0: for a minute. Does it make you uncomfortable hearing back all of your successes?
1: Yeah, I think it's just like a very British. (laughs) Sort of embarrassment. (laughs) I actually wanted to start
0: by asking you something that I read where you said growing up you felt destined to be famous, which in your book you say is cringy to write, but it's also true. And I wanted to ask you about that. Were you always certain that you'd be famous for your music, or was it a general feeling that you were going to do something of note?
1: I think I always quite liked the things where I was attracted to things where there was a bit of a stage element. So I was interested in drama. And even the idea of being a lawyer, but it was always about, the, like, the closing statement, okay. like you see in American movies. and Alimogil. Probably a very small part <laughs> of your actual legal job. Um, so I think I just sort of thought there'd be an element of that, but I wasn't really sure what it looked like. And then when I was 16, I started singing in my first band, um, which happened to be the one that also signed a record deal with when I was 18. So it kind of became the first adventure I had in music. And it was like, everything just fell into place. But the funny thing is, even though I felt that it was quite likely that there'd be a sort of um, profile element to what I did, I still actually am not particularly interested in fame. Mm. I think it's just because, like, my mum had done it, so I just sort of could see it more in a three-dimensional way.
0: Mm. Well, it (laughs) sounded to me when I read that that it was really more of a feeling than a desire.
1: I think that's true, actually. And probably also a certain thing, like... Some kids have just got that slight show-off element, and I think i probably had a bit of that too.
0: (laughs) I was also going to ask you about the reality of being famous and whether that lived up to the expectation, but then I found a quote where you talked about your first album and you likened that level of success to a roller coaster that you can't get off, and you actually cautioned people of wishing for that level of success. And I wondered if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, so that's when I um, had had my success with Groove Jet. So I'd had a record deal when I was 18, And then we were dropped by the time I was 20. And then Groove Jet kind of swept me up when I was 21. And then I signed a record deal, a solo deal off the back of that. And I think it was just a bit of a claustrophobic feeling because the album, my first album, which called Read My Lips, became a priority with Universal Records. And there's loads of brilliant things about that. You know, you get to travel the world, you're getting put into lots of situations where other people would be fighting to get onto, you know, big TV shows abroad and days of promo and all this kind of stuff. But I just felt like I didn't really have much um, authority over my own diary and I didn't see my friends very much for a while and it was just... It's quite lonely in the middle of it sometimes. And I think I absolutely would say it's, you know, if you're hoping for it if you want to be a successful musician. But I just, the the caution is not about having that experience because actually there's loads of good that comes out of it. It's more about enjoying the bit before that because that's the bit where you can really start to sort of flesh out in your mind exactly what kind of artist you want to be and what's important to you. Because as soon as you get to that bit, there's a whole little committee of people with all opinions. So mm. it's good to have a good sense of who you are by the time you get to that point, I would say. Mm,
0: that's interesting. That reminds me of just before Friends aired, they went out for one final supper and mm-hmm. I think their manager said to them, you have to enjoy this because everything is going to change oh, after wow. this moment.
1: Do you think they do that with the cast of every sitcom I and then there's all the other people <laughs> going, we had our dinner too, we're still meeting up, it's far." Nothing changed. exactly. Let's pause
0: there and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: So the first thing that sprung to mind was spaghetti bolognese, which I wonder how many people say that because it's such a classic family dish. But in my case, it was a slightly controversial one because from the age of four, my parents separated... And they both remarried by the time I was like seven or eight. So in both households, they would make spaghetti bolognese and they were quite different. Okay. And I adore my mum's cooking. My mum is a really good cook, but I quite liked my stepmum's version of spaghetti <laughs> bolognese as well. And it was just something I wasn't really allowed to mention casually. <laughs> <laughs> what made them so different? Um, I think my mum's is probably more similar to the one I make now. So quite classic um, whereas my stepmom would put in lots of vegetables, so it always had like courgette and carrots and things like this. Um, and the flavours were just quite different. Um, I think my mum's is quite a lot sweeter, actually. She always puts a little bit of honey in it, um, along with the tomato and all the classic stock and obviously onion and garlic and all the basics. But then my step-mum would have more vegetable sort of broader... I mean, I actually, you know, I would always go for my mum's cooking. Who wouldn't go for their mum's cooking? But I think with the spaghetti bolognese, I probably had a slight sort of uh, sway towards the vegetable one, oh God, but so that big. was not something that was welcome and my, um the home I found myself most often in because I was with my mum all the time except for every other weekend at my dad's. I feel really stressed <laughs> just thinking about that because I have a
0: very <laughs> similar family setup. When asked about your earliest food memory your answer was a birthday cake that your mum made mm. you around the age of three and you say that it looked like a hamburger but yeah. it wasn't meant to look like a hamburger. <laughs>
1: no in fact a couple of my early birthday cakes from my mum had a sort of disaster element the cake itself was tasty, but it did look like a giant hamburger. And then, so that was my third birthday, I think. And then the next birthday, um, my mum had made a cake and we were outside in a park. And she'd done it with like a little, like a load of plastic animals to look like a little sort of forest dwelling and then some sort of foliage, plastic foliage on the cake. And mm. as she brought it around the corner, the wind caught oh, no. one of the candles and just started melting all this plastic foliage all oh, no. over the, the cake. Um But luckily, we thought it was really funny. So yeah, a little forest fire cake for me.
0: It's very stressful as a parent thinking about the things that happen and how they're going to be these lasting memories with your children. Like, is that something you think about now? Have you had Um, any disasters?
1: Oh yeah, but actually I think as a family, humour's always been like quite high up on the list of how we communicate with each other, so it's all fine. And yeah. um we get together all the time as a family. So as, as a family here, we always eat together like meal times. There's seven of us here, but then my extended family are very regular visitors here. So that's my mum who's just down the road, my brother's just down the road, my sister, her other half. Like it's quite often that this table is heaving with family, so but it's always very the nice. case.
0: It's I think One of my earliest memories is my mum made a toadstool cake and it, it looked amazing and I had all my friends there and then I cut into it and there was a tin of baked beans like holding it up oh, as the wow. base and I just burst into tears and she was mortified I don't know why I was so upset I was so upset because that thought it, it <laughs> was going to be
1: cake yeah, it was beans. Because. because it wasn't cake it was
0: beans <laughs> <laughs> your mum, who you've mentioned is Janet Ellis and she's an actress and was a Blue Peter presenter I think you were very young at the time that she was presenting but Blue Peter was the height of everything were you aware that she had a very cool job
1: Not initially, because I was four when she started, so the same age my youngest is now, so I didn't think about it at all back then. But um, she did it till I was eight, so I think by the time I got to sort of six, seven, eight, it had started to dawn on me that other people's parents weren't doing that. And also, it was such a big program because this was at the time when there was only four channels and there was only two children's shows on at that time. So I think it was something like crazy between like 12 and 15 million people were watching it live. Oh my goodness. And it was always live. And um, yeah, it was a big part of my childhood. It was almost like a sibling in a way. I always felt like that about it because for a lot of that time, I was also um, in a single parent family with my mum. So we were just living on our own. She didn't start dating my stepdad till I was seven. So there was sort of three years where it was... My mum, me, and Blue Peter, really, sort of sharing the house. And um, she would get her scripts delivered the night before, have to learn it all by memory. No auto cue, nothing like that. Yes, went out live. And she was also doing, she did quite a few big trips. So I remember her going to Sri Lanka once for a month or so. She went to Africa. She would do these quite big trips, Australia. And also she was doing parachute jumps. That was her sort of, because a lot of the Blue Peter presenters had like a thing they were, their sort of challenge. Yeah, so she was doing that.
0: You write in your autobiography that you tried to bribe classmates of blue Peter badges and then they ganged up on you and created an I Hate Sophie club, which Sophie, that.
1: <laughs> well, those are two separate things. Okay. They weren't related. Oh, they weren't related. No, oh, I so thought it the, was. Uh-huh. Um The Against Sophie Club, as it's actually called. If you're a member, you would know that. I would never be a member. (laughs) My mum says she still renews her subscription every year. (laughs) Um, So the Against Sophie Club was in my infant school, actually, Um, and then the Selling the Blue Peter Badges was in my junior school. So it was a different different eras. Okay. So maybe I'd sort of taken hold of um, that which they were um, getting annoyed with me about, and said, actually, I can monetize the situation. Yes,
0: that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And there are also a lot of conversations happening at the moment about the term Nepo babies, which is a term that's used about Hollywood actors and their children. Mm -hmm. And I read an interview with your mum where she said that now she considers herself to be a Nepo mum. She's only known as Sophie's mum, which I loved. And I think we need more conversations about Nepo parents.
1: (laughs) Well, I also think it's kind of like a, I think it's a divisive term anyway. I mean... Every single person that does anything has had all their circumstance contribute to what's happened. Some challenges, some things easier. That's just life. So I don't really, yeah. I think it's sort of like a something and a nothing. It's a bit mm. of a Daily Mail. Yeah. Let's, let's start a debate, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I
0: think it's also very specific about Hollywood and about children going into the same industry and about acting. And now people have taken the term to just talk about anyone who has famous parents, but that isn't nepotism. And therefore it's not even relevant to the term basically
1: yeah i mean i I don't find it like offensive or anything i just can't think of any situation where anyone's circumstance hasn't had played yeah. a part in what happens in their life so yeah, i just i just sort of feel like it's a bit of a non-starter for yeah. me I, <laughs> I would agree with that sophie
0: <laughs> let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook
1: so it was an accompaniment to spaghetti bolognese, actually, um, garlic breads That was always my task. I would credit both my mum and my stepmum mum for being really good at encouraging my innate love of food, eating and cooking. Because I was always encouraged to stand next to them while they were preparing food and interested in what was going into the dish and that kind of thing. So I remember, yeah, from from when I was quite little, having the baguette and sawing all the portions and then putting in the garlic butter and all of that. So yeah, I had a little helpful role from quite early on. Did they make those in the same way?
0: (laughs) Yes, they both made those in the same way. No
1: controversy All straightforward.
0: (laughs) You've had such amazing success in your career and yet the success didn't come immediately. You were the lead singer of a band called The Audience and things ultimately didn't work out despite all the early signs being amazing with record bosses fighting over you and big money being offered. You yourself describe this as a failure, but you've also said that you're very grateful for it. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was an amazing experience. And from between 16 and 20, I had a kind of good, bad and ugly of everything to do with working in music and being a professional musician. And so it was a real crash course. And When I got to 18, all of my girlfriends went off to uni and I signed a record deal and went off on the Enemy Brat Tour and was sort of gone with this exciting opportunity with the band. And by the time I was 20, it had all gone away. And that was horrible because I thought, oh, maybe I've had like the best bit of my life and it's already (laughs) happened and and now I'm going to spend the rest of my days being like, oh, I had a record deal once when I was 18. (laughs) But I think it helped to clarify so many things. Most importantly, the fact that I still wanted to do it, no matter what, because... With the band, everything had happened so smoothly. You know, we did our first gig and we got one record deal offer. And then by the time we'd done six gigs, we had six record deal offers. And that's, you know, unheard of. It was such an extraordinary time, really heady, very exciting. But then it had all gone and I was left at the other side of it, so young as well. So I think it kind of taught me a lot about success, about failure, about resilience, but most importantly about wanting to still sing no matter what. I was like, well, if I'm going to call myself a singer... I can't always want to do it when the going's good. If if I really care about it, I'll want to do it no matter what. So I was like, okay, I can't think of anything else I want to do. So that was that.
0: I guess if things come too easily, it's very easy to take them for granted because you just assume they'll always be there perhaps.
1: Well, I think there might be an element of that, but I also think that having everything taken away is always your fear if you're in a situation where you know you're one of the lucky ones to have got the deal in the first Mm. place or, you know, be doing it for a living. And I've just never lost sight of that feeling, but also it it does really help you if you know what it feels like when everything goes. It's sort of, I mean, I would never want that to invite that, but it's a bit of a trump card to not be frightened of it because it means that you can make decisions that feel more, they resonate with you more. Yeah. And... I've always been someone that's trusted my instincts and I've always also sort of built up around me a, a family of people that have helped me do what I do. You know, and I still work with a lot of the same people now for like over 20 years now. But I think at the core of it, saying yes to doing something was what I was being told to do by a record company and I didn't feel it in my heart. I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to say no because I know I, I'm not scared of this all going south mm. if it's not for the right reasons. So I think that kind of helped me as well. But I think a lot of people have that, don't they, when they've had a... Success in something—it often follows on from it all going pear-shaped early on, and you know, learning a little bit about that. Yeah, wouldn't recommend it. It's (laughs) not not a lot of fun, I wouldn't say.
0: One of those things in hindsight, you can say you're very pleased happened, but at the time. Is pretty miserable.
1: Oh yeah, crushing. Especially because all my girlfriends were still away at uni; they hadn't even finished, and I was like, oh, "Now I can't even go to uni because I'll be like the fonds, like this old <laughs> old student, <laughs> like turning <laughs> up, like hey kids." So I just thought I literally well, at,
0: the, at the age of like
1: <laughs> <yeah, and> twenty, <laughs> yeah. And also, I was like, I don't actually have any other things I can do. I couldn't think of a single.
0: Did you skill really feel, set? Did you I really had.
1: feel like that? Yeah. I started writing a book, which was terrible. I just needed something to get out of bed for. I just needed something I would achieve each day. I think think people really need that, don't you? Like a little bit of something that you're heading towards, a momentum. And when that's not there, I think that's when you can really get quite blue.
0: Definitely. Mm. When Groovejet came along, it mm. completely changed your life. Not only was it enormously successful, but it also changed the type of music that you would begin to love. And when it came out, it had the same release date as Victoria Beckham's first <laughs> solo record. And everyone was talking about who was going to be number one. It was huge. That must have been so surreal.
1: Yeah, really surreal and quite stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and also a little bit annoying because I was like, oh, I just want to enjoy having this song that's given me back music in my life and then everybody just kept going oh but what if you're number two and I was like if I'm number two that's still amazing like my last single from the audience had charted at like I don't even ever went top 40 I was like this is great but um but actually I did just kind of quite enjoy as well a little bit of the cartoony element of all that and not everybody when they release a song gets to have this whole kind of cacophony of stuff around the release. So I was like, just try and enjoy it because it's silly and it's not really what's going to last. What's going to last is your relationship with the song, so you might as well just Kind of enjoy this ridiculousness because it was literally like on the front cover of papers and on the six o'clock news and all this sort of stuff. I mean, just loopy. Quite fun. Yeah, <laughs> fun, stressful, but mainly just a bit like, look, this is once in a lifetime. You won't have this happen again. Yeah. And I haven't.
0: I read a story where the papers were saying that it was quite close and it didn't end up being that close. But you were sitting on a bus, I think, waiting outside Woolworths, deciding whether maybe you should run in and buy your record. Mm.
1: <laughs> and actually, it was really close. On the last week, when you have a a song out in those days um, you would get your midweeks of how many you'd sold each day and by the time we got to the Friday which is the last midweek you would hear before the chart is announced there was only 200 copies in it oh and, my goodness and the true steppers and uh, Victoria Beckham and Dane Bowers was only 200 sales ahead so actually no I did think oh if I what if I find out on Sunday that they were number one, but only by like one copy because mm. it had been getting closer and closer a week. Yeah,
0: that's so And 200 stressful. is nothing.
1: But actually, as it happened, and I didn't know this, but dance records tended to do really well at the weekends because people would hear a DJ play on a Friday night and they'd go and get it on the Saturday. So in the end, we ended up selling like an extra 20,000 that day. But I didn't know okay. that. I just and, and I was like, no, I've never bought my own single, so I'm not going to start now. I have to be at peace with this.
0: So, yeah. Oh, my God, I would have been so tempted to go and buy <laughs> 200 copies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, even then it would have only counted as one sale if you oh. a single purchase. Just so oh, like, okay. if you good to, to
0: know, for so my future pop star <laughs> career. Yeah. I would definitely have to buy all the albums if I wanted to sell any. <laughs> Let's talk about the third Desert Island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: <sighs> so... When I was thinking, because I knew you were going to ask me that and I was thinking that's actually one of the trickiest ones and then I realised actually it's not tricky for me because I quite like the fact that I don't categorise my meals in that way. Okay. So my favourite dish I've ever eaten is every time I've been really happy and eaten something delicious with people I love and somewhere I'm happy and that's kind of it. So I've had loads of best dishes I've ever eaten and sometimes it's I mean, I remember one time when Richard and I went away just for a couple of days by ourselves to Italy and we got one of those things where you get, like, the mixed fried fish fresh in the tin foil, and you take, we took it down to the beach with a bottle of white wine, just sat there eating that next to the sea and had a swim. That's the best thing ever. Or one time when I was on holiday, again in Italy, actually, with my mum, my stepdad, my brother, his girlfriend at the time, my sister, um, all of my kids, and we're all eating pasta by the beach with, like, sand on our toes and still with our swimsuits on. Best thing ever. Sometimes it's fish and chips at home here with the kids and Richard. I, I have best dishes all the all the time. <laughs> mm. I, I think that's
0: how I'd answer the question as well. Like mm. it's about the experience, it's not about the food.
1: Yeah, and actually, I mean, I, it's really lovely to go somewhere where the, the kitchen, the chef has taken care into creating something extraordinary that would be really hard to create in your own home. But I don't really want to be sat there reverential about the food. Yeah. I want to be made to feel... My shoulders are dropped. I'm having a nice time with whoever I'm with. I feel comfortable. I don't feel like an imposter in that scenario. And if the food's good, brilliant. But that's not really what I want my takeaway to be. That's yeah. not how I want to feel when I'm eating it.
0: Yeah. It's about the memories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about Kitchen Disco Sessions, which you did during lockdown at a time when live music wasn't happening, and they really became this huge lockdown success story, and even led to you releasing a new album entitled Songs from the Kitchen Disco. It was so feel-good and brought joy to so many people. How did the idea come about?
1: So the idea was actually Richards, my husband. We had gone into our own little lockdown here a little earlier than the national one, and I don't know if you remember, but at the time, if one of your kids or someone had a cough, they would be sent home, and then there were no testing at that time. So as a precaution, everybody that was with that person also had to be at home. And then I think it was like 10 days you had to be at home. Oh, it was really stressful. So one of my children had been coughing at school. He gets sent home. I then have to pick up the other little one and say, sorry, you're not going back to school again tomorrow. In fact, we're not going back for another two weeks or whatever it was. Lots of tears, got home, already stressful. So then as the national lockdown happens, uh, I was seeing on my feed online because everybody was looking at like Instagram and Twitter, like what's everybody else doing? How are they feeling? And so many really talented musicians were accompanying themselves on piano and singing songs. And I was thinking, I have this real urge to communicate with people or to get lost in music a little bit, but I can't, my piano playing is just not up to that level. (laughs) I was like, ah, I can't do this. Um, And Richard said, why don't we do a live stream stream Uh, on Friday night, we'll do a live stream of like a party set and you can sing and we'll just do it from our home. And I was like, that's insanity. Uh, Our youngest at the time was 14 months, so like crawling around all over the floor. Um, I just thought, I don't know how to do that, but I'm not actually doing anything else, so might as well. So I put on a sequin cat suit. We did this half hour performance thing mess. um, And I was literally afterwards looking thinking everybody's going to be making fun of me like what has happened to that woman she's already gone mad and actually we just got this real wave of warmth from people and just saying actually that was really good fun and that people had found it quite silly and a bit of a break from the heaviness of everything that was going on and, w- and we felt the same way and that was just a really welcome feeling in our brains as a way to alleviate all the stress and the tension and then it started to build a bigger place for us in our in our heads and in our morale because it was a thing that richard and i could really give ourselves a bit of a break from all the other stuff with so we'd we'd be like okay we're doing all the domestic stuff but actually what songs are we going to do this week and do we need to do an edit on that and what covers of mine what songs of mine should i do what covers should i do and then i'd be learning new lyrics it just was like a real solace actually Mm -hmm. i would really look forward to it
0: you got as much out of it as
1: the audience at home huge amount I, i mean my my initial thing was purely selfish uh, because it made me feel better and then it was lovely it made other people feel better and then I became to really feel such warmth and affection for that community and everybody that popped around I felt like a real connection with them and of course singing is my day job but that wasn't where that came from it came from the fact that music is the thing that's always taken me away and helped me articulate how I'm feeling or just given me a place to put straight if you jump around and dance to something you feel better and all that tension, all that family like uh, of being like with each other and not knowing what's happening and all the stuff on the news and how awful everything was and where it was going to head to, it was just a tonic. It's good to do something silly mm. and dress up in sequins and be like, let's do this for a minute.
0: Your worry about people thinking it was silly or thinking that you were going to humiliate yourself was that worry ever enough to have stopped you from doing it? Well, no, because I still did the I, know, I know, but <laughs> did it really? Did you really have to push yourself to to do that?
1: I think it was more the opposite in a way. It was more that once I realised that no one was saying that to me, it made me take it further and. I have been collecting strange little outfits for years now, so I love... (laughs) For this reason. (laughs) That's kind of how it felt, because I was, um, you know, I I was always going on eBay and looking at, like, vintage ice skating outfits and things like this, and I have got loads of stuff like that upstairs, and I had always thought, I wonder what this is all for, and then when I was doing the discos, I was was actually wearing all those silly outfits, so it was almost like letting out the more, like, strange side of me, really, (laughs) like like more eccentric side. It was like giving it that space and it felt really good. And so I think it actually has probably forever changed my relationship with music, but also with performance. Mm. Because I think before that, like when I started making dance music, I felt like there was a certain way you're supposed to be if you make dance. And I was, when I did Groove Jet, I never danced on stage. I was really still because I was like, well, if I don't know how to do like a perfectly choreographed little routine here, I'd rather just do nothing and stay still, even though when I was out with my girlfriends or at home, I'd be dancing around all over the place. And so it kind of let the gap between me offstage and my sort of slightly more like, I don't know, eccentric, silly side, it was like I allowed that to be part of my on stage thing. Mm. And that was kind of happening anyway, but... I think the kitchen disco sort of sealed the deal, really. Yeah. So now, when I'm on stage, I just feel as, as relaxed as ever because it's like I can be right like, completely myself, and that's yeah. that's okay.
0: That's incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's really nice. I mean, maybe that happens as well with getting towards. I was I turned forty just before, so the, like in 2019. So maybe that kind of helped as well when you get a bit older and you just you just don't care as much. Life is too <laughs> short. I
0: think also there's an important lesson in there because. I think that fear of worrying about what people are going to think is often enough to stop people doing something, and yeah. this is a lesson to show that we shouldn't be listening to that inner critic.
1: Yeah, no, as you say, it is, is your your own self actually? There isn't that person. It's like it's it's you, and because actually, once you feel okay with what you're doing, you don't really listen to the, anyone who says anything nasty anymore. It's not yeah. the same. But before that, they are you. So you flesh out those criticisms with a sort of three dimensional version of it because you you've got that space in your own head to sing on stage is
0: one thing but then to perform like you say dancing and showing this different side of yourself would you consider yourself a very confident person
1: mm, yes and no I mean I think a lot of confidence is a trick actually but I do think as a muscle you can you can hone it a bit more I mm. think that, you know once you start to learn some ways to make yourselves feel comfortable in that then it kind of like You sort of trick yourself, too. So I think I'm definitely more relaxed in myself. I don't know about actual 100% confidence. I don't really know, what that looks like. But I definitely feel, like, pretty happy in my skin, I suppose. Yeah. But in those (laughs) early days, standing on a
0: stage for the first time and performing Mm. to thousands of people, was that terrifying? Or was it you just felt like you were in your element?
1: A mixture. I think when the music's playing and I'm singing, I'm fine. And... um, My mum had gone to drama school and uh, she used to speak about when she was on stage and in the middle of saying her lines and she felt this real power of like everybody in the room is now having to listen to me and this power. And I didn't, I used to act at school and I thought I was trying to find that feeling and I never got it. And as soon as I did my first gig, it was like, I know what she's talking about. Ah. So I get that from music. But in between whiles, I used to be very awkward chatting in between songs and that kind of thing. And I I would say as well, it never 100% goes away. You know, I, I'm always the person keeping check of myself when I'm on stage. I, if I was in the crowd, what would I be thinking about this? What would I be thinking about that? And I could probably go away and always give a list of all the things that I could have done better. Yeah. But I feel that like my enjoyment level is probably as high as it's ever been. I actually adore it. I love the people I work with. I feel very safe. And I suppose that's probably more it than really. Mm. It's about safety rather than confidence or anything else so if we were on to the most important question of the day (laughs) it's the
0: fourth desert island dish what is your favorite sandwich
1: (laughs) and that is such an important question um can i just ask you do you have one just out of interest
0: well here's where i feel like a bit of a phony because i i would find this question very hard to answer i I love all sandwiches
1: yeah i was gonna say i think i'm quite easygoing like i i'm i mean if i'm in like a sandwich shop and I have to choose yeah. I'll probably go tuna actually okay. but the last time I was in a sandwich place my mum, my brother and I had a bagel on Saturday morning and I actually surprised myself I went for salt beef with the pickle and mustard Ooh. which is not my usual but it was really good so I'm open yeah I just don't think I've <laughs> met a sandwich I haven't liked yeah I'm pretty easygoing as well yeah. so happily for anyone making me a sandwich okay. I'll probably eat it <laughs>
0: My chance to speak to any singer, and I have to take the opportunity to ask you about your rider. What are your non-negotiables? Because I've heard that you are partial to a gherkin.
1: Well, that's the joke of that is what I say is no gherkin, no working. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love gherkins.
0: It's okay, I mean, any
1: kind, or are
0: you quite particular? Mm,
1: I can eat any, but okay. I definitely prefer some over others. Like sometimes it's about the brand. Um, I prefer a more sweet one than a salty one. My all-time favorites are the proper fish and chip shop ones. Ooh, yes. The big, really big ones. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, I would just go in there and be given one in the wrapper and I'd eat the whole thing, which actually must have looked a little bit, (laughs) but I really loved it. (laughs) Have you ever tried making them? No, I don't eat. I've got a fish and chip shot like two well, minutes away. Okay, yeah. <laughs> silly question. But I did get question. bought, um, Richard once bought me like a really big, like full-size one. But if you don't eat them quick, they go a bit weird in the vinegar. Um, they go from green to something that's like pale yellow, and then they don't taste as good. So um, yeah.
0: You don't want the pressure of the jar. No, I'd say just get them the fresh. Jar. Just okay. get them fresh. Yeah, that's
1: a good tip. <laughs> but I do quite like cornichons as well. I think I just like the vinegary sweetness, and I've noticed in a lot of food, I'm not, I haven't got a massive sweet tooth for puddings and things, but I love sweet with savory, so... Mm. Um, yeah, I'll often make that an addition, and yeah, vinegary things too.
0: Uh, Did you know something I heard the other day? You know the gherkins in a um, cheeseburger from McDonald's. Yeah, the reason they put them in there is because the I don't know if this is true. So we're gonna have sure to I fact check it. But, Go on. Um, the bun is so sweet, if the gherkins weren't in there, it would actually be, like, classified as... Okay, as I'm saying it, it doesn't sound true, but classified as a pudding because of the sweetness.
1: That doesn't... Well, like, didn't they get found it to, like, not even really be, like, food? But <laughs> when I was a child, classic child of divorce parents was always taken to McDonald's by my dad. Oh, my goodness, Sophie, yeah. me too. Are you- so every Friday. Okay, yeah, so I mean, every other Friday. Um in fact, I think, like, so many of my childhood memories about food are about quite indulgent, like, Chinese restaurant around the corner from my dad as well, and all this kind of thing. And it was, like, the language of, you know, if he didn't have very long with my dad, all the meals were, like, my favourite meals all the time, which is actually, looking back, is really sweet. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, the the McDonald's burger with the little gherkin was probably part of the reason I got so obsessed with gherkins because yeah. I was like, I always wanted that. And if I'm with someone and they take it out, oh, i like, know like, even weird. if we don't know each other that well, doing? I'll probably be like, can I, if you're not going to eat that. <laughs> I can't stand when people leave it on the side. Like, just please, a, give that gherkin a home. can I eat it? And B, what is Why? wrong with you? I know. And are you aware you're now eating pudding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can bring out that very interesting fact, though, I too. don't care if it's true or not. I'm going to tell people anyway. <laughs>
0: You and your husband have written a cookbook as an extension of your love for cooking for people. And I know that Richard, your husband, is a brilliant cook. Am I right in thinking that his dad was a chef at Café Royale in London in the 60s and he cooked for people like the Beatles? He yeah. Must, he must
1: have amazing stories. He does. Really amazing. And also it's so funny because some of the dishes are so retro. Um, there was a, a pudding called something like Mount Vesuvius, which was kind of a meringue thing where you'd pour something in at the last minute and it was sort of erupt on the plate and dishes that were... Um, Fish with raisins, and I think really? that was at the time all seen as quite sort of, you know, new and a bit French and interesting. Richard got his confidence in cooking, I think, from his dad too, because he used to see his dad cooking. But actually, Richard's got that thing where he's just a very instinctive cook. And um, I love cooking, but I'm not as at home in the kitchen as him, I think. When he's cooking, he's so happy. He just enjoys the whole process of it. Um, and it works quite well for us because we've got like little kids still. Um, Quite often I'll say, right, you know, if you cook supper and I'll be like playing with the kids in the garden or tidying something up or whatever. And it's quite a nice thing to know that I'm going to get like a really nice supper in a yeah. <laughs> <Richard> <laughs> so sounds for, amazing. Yeah, I'm all for <laughs> encouraging that. Um, but yeah, the, and the cookbook actually probably helped that too, actually with his you know, actually starting to see himself more that way. Weirdly, initially it had the reverse oppo- opposite effect on me. When we first put together the cookbook, I sort of retreated a bit because I thought, now people expect me to be able to cook all the time. So I had to kind of like get back into it, even though I've always adored cooking and mm. I've cooked for myself since since I could really. That's
0: interesting. So you felt like
1: a level of expectation. Yeah. Because now you're so. a cookbook author. Exactly. <laughs> but then I remembered that's not really what where it came from. We, we both love cooking for people and... If we've got people coming over, we love just putting down big dishes and just being like right everybody feast we both got our roles as well so we quite often do work together not doing the same things together but we'll have like i'll take care of one side of things and he'll do the other side of things
0: a dream team Sophie. Yeah, fun. and nice. it really is a brilliant book it feels so personal and i think for me that is the key to a great cookbook so it's got your recipes it's got your mum's recipes recipes from your siblings and even your children's old nanny has got a recipe in there Yeah. on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner where we ask people to talk about their most treasured cookbook which we're going to get to but just to let you know that Jack Savaretti chose your
1: cookbook Did as he? his most treasured cookbook that's very sweet of him yeah. well I'm glad you say it's personal but I, I mean, if it's not personal what is the point of doing a cookbook quite frankly mm. like you can get all every recipe is, you know they're all out there so putting your own twist on things describing how it is for you what your table's like what you know, the relationship dynamic that that is the essence of a cookbook, I think, actually. Mm. It has to have that. Otherwise like don't you can just Google it. I suppose as well, Richard and I were so excited because we actually we'd approached um some book agents about doing a cookbook back in twenty 16 I think oh yeah and we'd written the whole sort of synopsis of what we wanted to do then the thing of doing it with all these different recipes and family things we wanted to do it like that then so I think when octopus approached us about doing the cookbook they were a bit shocked because almost immediately I wrote back with like 80 recipes (laughs) you know my synopsis all this stuff of how we envisaged it um and I think they could have probably if if we hadn't been in the mood they could have probably gone and here's someone that can prepare for you a dozen dishes we'll slap your names on the cover and off you go and I was just like no, no, we we are so ready for this. They were like, "Wow, that was a really quick turnaround." Yeah, Sophie. yeah. Like- and it's so—I mean, what a privilege! It's so fun, and yeah. So, like, Nanny Claire had to be in there. My mom, Richard's dad, as you say, my brother, my sister—they're all in there. Like, let's just—we all love it. So, yeah. And so. <laughs>
0: trying to get the book deal in 2016 and then ultimately having the publisher come to you. Mm. Was that as a result of the kitchen discos?
1: Yeah, I think that the uh, Octopus, who actually, as it happens, make some beautiful books that we already had on our cookbook shelf. So that was lovely as well. Um, They approached us with this, you know, what about recipes from the kitchen disco and cocktails? Because we always did cocktails every Mm. Friday. Very, very important part of the disco, as it happens. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so we were like, all about that but also I have to give credit as well to this woman called Yaja who did all the design with us because I think actually if it hadn't visually looked the way I could see it it would have been really easy for it to sort of start to be a bit jarring but I had all these ideas about the visual side and she really got it. And so the first thing she sent back is a sort of, do you mean something like this? I was like, yeah, that's it. I love it. And I think if you haven't got that straight away, those conversations could probably be a bit clunky. But Mm. we took wallpaper from around the house, kids' drawings, loads of photos, all of it, just chucked it all in. Yeah, It's so fun. It sounds like
0: it was just a case of everything slotting together.
1: And I think if those things aren't fun, like it's a bit like making an album. If it's not going to be fun, then what are you doing what are you hoping what what do you hope people feel when they open it you've got you've got to imbue that into the pages haven't you yeah it's like the same with the music if I'm making I don't know a song I hope people dance to if I'm not dancing around the room while I'm recording it then what am I trying to do like why would I expect someone else to be dancing if I'm not yeah
0: it's asking too much of other people (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly
1: that's a good way to approach things I think I'm going Mm. going to adopt that (laughs) we're on to the fifth desert island dish and that's the dish you eat the most often I think that's quite easy for me because I, I eat the same things all the time. Like, I love a, a fish fillet with just nice salads on the side. That, that's my go to. And if Richard's away, that's what I'll probably make myself. Um, so maybe like uh, tuna, it could be salmon, cod. I, we just, we love fish actually, Richard and I. We eat a lot of fish. And then I'll do lots of like, I love my side salads and vegetables. So um, I'll probably have fennel on there, like raw fennel with a bit of lemon juice and olive oil and salt and uh, a nice salad with a really good dressing. And then if I'm, you know, I love like new potatoes or roasted red peppers filled with cherry tomatoes and garlic and anchovy, all things like that. So things that are quite easy. I'm quite lazy. I want something I can start cooking and be eating within about half an hour maximum, really we we all, <laughs> <laughs> rich Richard's a bit more like, let's do a slow... He takes ages. Okay, yeah, he loves that.
0: <laughs> do you eat together often with all the boys?
1: Yeah, so the kids have supper quite early at 5.30. So if okay. we can, we eat with them. And definitely the weekends, that's all of us together. Yeah. But sometimes in the week, if one of us is working, then we might. But if we don't get that slot, it's actually quite hard. And then sometimes we end up eating really late, which I don't like. So... I think we've got better at eating all together, actually. Yeah. yeah, it is hard eating at 5.30, though, isn't it? It is quite early, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. But it's just become the time when we eat. And actually, that's quite good because it gives time for that before-bed snack, which my kids seem to really obsess... With. Like, that's what's their go-to before-bed well, snack? Well, I try and make it really boring, because I don't want them to rely on it, but they all <laughs> seem to get hungry again, uh, probably because we eat so early, but I feel like they would eat anyway, so it would yeah. be, like, cereal or some toast or something like that. Yeah. So nothing too
0: jazzy. No, my toddler's got into the habit of asking for porridge before she goes to bed. Like, oh, that's what? quite good, actually.
1: <laughs> I know, but is that normal? I yes, don't know. actually, okay. and actually, I, there was a... A woman I spoke to once who was helping Mickey, my youngest, was terrible at sleeping, absolutely terrible. And she said, give him porridge before bed because the it was something to do with the dairy and the way that it fills your tummy and it oh. can actually have quite a good effect on making you oh, sleepy, okay. but also stay full for longer with the porridge so that was one of her recommendations yeah. maybe there are some grown-ups that would benefit from that too yeah have definitely porridge before bed <laughs> so you
0: are a mother of five which I just wanted to say from a personal perspective I think is amazing because <laughs> I have two and two seems like a lot two and is a lot one was a lot when I just had one <laughs> <laughs> to put it in perspective you have released seven albums in between having your five sons but I wondered, did you always want to be a parent and did you always envisage having a very big family?
1: Definitely always thought I'd be a mum. I don't think I really gave it a second thought, actually. My mum had me when she was 23. Her mum had her at 23. So actually when I didn't have a baby at 23, I felt like I'd sort of broken the cycle a bit. Um... (laughs) And then I started dating Richard when I was 24. And then we found out we were having Sonny when we'd only been together for six weeks. So it was a bit like, oh, okay, um, maybe I'm going to be quite, you know, relatively young mum after all. But yeah, Sonny just kind of made us feel like a family from the get-go. And I always sort of say to him, you know, if he, we hadn't loved having him around so much, I wouldn't have had so many. Because it yeah. was actually... Very joyful having him. And, of course, it's full on. And I think that's why it took me so long to have a second one. What's the but, gap between Sonny um, and Nearly five one. years. Okay. But I just loved it. And I think, for me, I've always associated new babies as a, a happy thing. Um, when I was eight, my brother was born. So he's the my mum and my stepdad's um, son. And I was absolutely obsessed with him. He was my first sibling and I just doted on him, always on my hip, I'd put him to bed, I'd play with him. And I think that kind of carried through really that thing of like, firstly, a happy thing to come out of, you know, all the divorce and new beginnings. But then there was this gorgeous little boy that I just adored. And also just the idea of nurturing, really. So I do. I mean, it's, it can be so knackering. (laughs) But I also really love it and I love the busy chaos of it and so once I started to have a couple more I was like actually yeah another one I didn't actually know I was going to have so many but <laughs> every time I'd have another one I'd be like oh just one more um, I guess I mean, it's the
0: idea of you never want the last one to be the last necessarily I
1: think it, it was that? also just I would always be like ah we've got room for another I mean I remember sometimes it was a bit silly like I literally had Ray in my arms on the day I gave birth and I said to my doctor do you think I'll be okay to have another c-section one day because they've had them all by c-section because the first two were premature so I had to have um, emergency c-sections and he was like yes you could one day and I was like okay and Richard's like you've literally that's our child like in your arms so sometimes it was a bit woohoo um and when I was pregnant with Jesse who's my fourth I did tell, start saying, this is my last baby. And then halfway through, I was like, probably. And then I was 39 when I had Mickey, and I thought, I've got time for just one more. I think I could fit one more in. I, think, I
0: think you can fit one more in. Uh-huh.
1: So and I was also like, look, I'll leave it in the hands of the fates. I know, I know that it's not really my decision, but I was definitely open to it. And then happily, Mickey came along. And the only time I've ever thought, like, what I've done kind of moment was actually lockdown, where I was like, this is actually quite a lot, because they went from baby crawling through to a 16 year old and I was like I don't actually know if I know how to do this mm. I mean that's not something that anyone could ever no, factor have into <laughs> predicted yeah. so that
0: is no. very fair enough. and all
1: that nonsense about having to be homeschooling like straight away and I just thought I don't think I know how to support all my children through no. that and then I realized like no no Just do what works for your family. And actually, that that took the pressure off. Mm, That's very sensible.
0: Mm. As someone (laughs) who has been so successful in navigating having a career and having a family, I'm sure you get asked about this a lot. But I just wondered if there's one bit of advice that you would give your younger self, what would it be?
1: Well... I think the reality of that is like I don't know if I would really listen to myself okay. that much. Would you've listened when younger? You listen to you? No, of course not. But also, I, you she kinda... should
0: do because I'm very wise.
1: <laughs> but then, if you're wise now, then you've got to that point through all the things you did. I don't. Same. I'm definitely not someone that um, feeds any sort of regret. So there's nothing like that. I think it's more actually just going back to any time that's been really challenging and saying, you know, don't worry, like it will, it will get better. But then. I probably had good counsel for that at the time, you know. I, a lot of my girlfriends still my close friends and all that sort of stuff. So, no, nah, I'm not going to give my younger me any advice. Okay. Well, Just that's do a, it. That's I'll a, keep my eyes closed. That's a good
0: <laughs> answer in itself.
1: <laughs> We're on to the sixth Desert Island dish. What is your go-to dinner
0: party dish?
1: So, we really like big communal things. So, I think the thing we've done the most often for a party is probably a big Mexican spread because it's really easy. People can pick and choose the bits they're going to eat so it's good for vegetarians and it's good for meat eaters and it's it's actually really easy plus it looks great on a table so yeah. we'll do a big uh, slow cooked pork big big pot full of that um some street corn or your guacamole or salsa some pickled red onions maybe some um chipotle beans and just have it all over the table and just be like right get stuck in there's your wraps and that way people can kind of Go around it, can't they? Yeah. Just walk around the table and fill their, their apps. I think that's the easy way to do it. Yeah. Don't do big individual like individual portions if you've got a lot of people to i I've made that mistake before. Yeah, it's really you, only, you only do
0: that once. Like no. restaurant plating in the kitchen. Oh yeah, like, my god very, Why do we do that to ourselves?
1: I remember a dinner party once when I was must have been about twenty two and um I, I got these steaks and I was like, How does everybody really want them cooked? Oh, and then Sophie. I was trying, it was so <laughs> stressful. I will never do that to myself ever again.
0: I think the first one I did was making everyone their own ravioli. Like, no. Oh wow. I, yeah. Why, why? would you do that? That's well, like at least complete. you could do
1: that before they arrive. Because I do think I have a rule as well about not having to do anything fussy or fiddly when people are here. Yeah. By the time they get here, and they say There's anything I can do to help, I'm like, nah. The maximum will be like, can you carry some? Yeah. Water jug because you want to be enjoying table it
0: rather than like yeah. And I don't want them like to see working. me flapping
1: about the place, going, why did I decide to take this on? Like, nah. They, when they get here, it should be like. La, 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 music yeah. on here's a glass of wine let's just chill you're a swan <laughs> yeah
0: um I, I know you're not a big sweet person but would you serve a pudding
1: uh it's normally the thing i kind of forget actually what i might do is um i've got a few people when i invite them i know they will make something that's quite handy my sister's very good at baking cakes that's a very good idea. Uh, my mum has brought puddings a few times and actually i had on monday last week i had Uh, a birthday party for me that was a surprise birthday. I've never had that before. It was really fun. And my girlfriend Julia made not one but two really good cakes. Oh wow, She's excellent. That's amazing. That's the trick. Make friends with with people (laughs) who make puddings. That's my tip there.
0: (laughs) On Desert Island Dishes we have a cookbook corner so I wondered if I could ask you about your most treasured cookbook.
1: That's an easy one because it's nearly falling apart now but when I left home at 18 my mum gave me Nigel Slater's book. It's got some really good basic dishes and some fun ones, things like salsa verdes and things like this which are really good because they make you feel a bit clever if you put them next to other things but they're actually quite straightforward. Yeah. But actually what I really love about it is his way of writing about food. And in the introduction he says, um, I don't really believe it when people tell me they can't cook because if you can make yourself a cup of tea, you can cook because all it is is ingredients and timing. And that actually really encouraged me with my cooking. So I thought it's true actually. It's It doesn't have to be something that's sort of like bestowed on people. If you know how to make yourself toast, you you might not enjoy it that much. That's a different thing. But Mm -hmm. actually the ability is about ingredients and timing.
0: Yeah. And don't let your lack of ability ruin your enjoyment of it. Because sometimes you don't enjoy something if you feel like you're not good at it. Oh, definitely. But getting your head around, you don't have to be good at it.
1: And also you can kind of understand, I mean, with the pudding thing, I can make a cake and I can make puddings, but I just find baking particularly is such an exact science. Yeah. That doesn't suit me normally because I'm the sort of person that will, if I've got majority of ingredients for something, I'll have a go. I don't necessarily have to have everything in a recipe. I know that's not how everybody feels about it, but that's m- me. So that's why I like cooking where it can be a bit more flexible. You don't really get that so much with baking. Mm. But I think with cooking yourself something to eat, I've always found that's pleasurable and I also find it relaxing. So yeah. if I get the ability to prepare something, and actually when I'm on tour, I really miss making myself food. I like it. I
0: think it's really interesting the um, discussion about cooking versus baking because I think you are one or the other. Like you mm. either find it stressful following rules or you find that relaxing and then vice versa.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I find it stressful. I think it's just that like, it's just not my not, usual habitat. Yeah. And um, I actually spoke not that long ago to Mary Berry uh, for my podcast and she gave me her cookbook and I tried. A salted caramel cake and it turned out so well i've made that a couple of times and now i'm like well at least i know i can do that one yeah, yeah it's, it's very good cake
0: <laughs> if queen mary berry says it's a good one We exactly will trust <laughs> we're on to the final seventh desert island dish and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island
1: oh well because my go-to absolutely like you know we richard and i talk about this quite a lot like our death row thing is always fish and chips with a gherkin so that's it, quite yeah. filling. I don't know if I need other courses, really. Okay. I mean, I suppose if I was going to draw it out, I could go for more of a, like, hotchpotch of different things I love. But if we're looking for a meal that is always, like, great and I do, like, a little happy dance before I eat it, uh, it's that. And I have ketchup, mayonnaise, vinegar on the chips. I don't have salt on my chips, which is controversial. But okay. if someone's put it on by accident, I'll still eat it. But oh, I don't,
0: as then you don't put on extra salt or you ask I do not have Yeah, not they, to have I salt. don't put
1: them, have them salt my chips. Oh. I just didn't grow up that way, so, okay. like... It's whatever you're used to. Yeah, so if it's on there... Obviously, I can appreciate that, but I don't add salt onto my chips. And okay. if they say salt on this, I'll go, just vinegar, a good place. <laughs> or I might even say, don't worry about it, I'll do it myself. The way you said that was quite apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is a bit weird. I don't think that is weird. I don't know. I feel like most people have salt. Maybe. Hmm. You're, very, you're much healthier than the rest of us, Sophie. Are you going to have a drink? Would you like a oh, cocktail? Yeah. I'm so easygoing about that. I mean, can I have a few? <laughs> Maybe a Negroni. I love Negronis at the moment. Margarita's always good with salt oh, around yeah. the rim. Well, quite often, if I don't have work on a New Year's Eve, uh, Richard and I will have fish and chips with champagne. Oh, yeah, that feels a, quite good. Yeah, that's the juxtaposition of the the glam and the yeah. basic is nice. The high low. Mm. Sophie, with that, we will send you <laughs> off to the Desert Island. Very Thank happy you so much.
0: <laughs> so there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. If you enjoy the podcast, do think about subscribing wherever you're listening, and if you felt like leaving a review, that would be fab too. So, we are running a competition with The Garden Trading Company, and I'm so excited. You've got the chance to win £250 to spend on their site. They have so many gorgeous things on there that for your kitchen, but also beyond. It's so easy to enter. I'm going to pop the link in the show notes and you just click on that and it tells you exactly what you need to do. But the deadline is the 11th of May. So just make sure you do it in time and good luck. If you don't already, come on, follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for the newsletter on the website DesertIslandDishes.co. And there you'll get emails telling you about that week's guest and all sorts of other goodies. Thank you again to Lloyds Bank, our sponsor for this season. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.